Since December, round-the-clock news coverage, conspiracy theories, and lightning-fast scientific discoveries have given people COVID-19 news overload. It got so bad that in February 2020, the World Health Organization declared an infodemic, an overabundance of information, some accurate and some not, that makes it hard for people to find trustworthy news sources and reliable guidance when they need it. As our heads were already flooded with too much true and false information, scientists also confirmed the first case of COVID-19 reinfection. But what exactly does it mean to get infected with COVID-19 twice? And how does this finding fit into a sea of coronavirus news? It turns out the same takeaway from the first coronavirus reinfection applies to the infodemic. It will likely remain as long as the pandemic continues, but with the right protection, we can better weather the storm. Just as our immune system learns to guard itself with antibodies, we can learn to ward off misinformation and embrace uncertainty. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about the first case of coronavirus reinfection and what it tells us about our body's defense against COVID-19. Offering promising signs that the immune system is wise to the virus, researchers are hopeful the latest information is a step toward making a better vaccine and hastening the end of the pandemic. Our second story is about the COVID-19 infodemic. Faced with information overload, people often fall into black and white thinking as they try to make sense of so many confusing and ever-changing details. Fortunately, key strategies can help overcome COVID-19's most common mental traps and stay sane along the way. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, how the confirmation of COVID-19 reinfection presents two crucial pieces of information for the fight against the pandemic. Scientists in Hong Kong are reporting the first documented coronavirus reinfection. From Hong Kong, the first confirmed case of a patient contracting the coronavirus a second time. There are now three lab-confirmed cases worldwide of people becoming reinfected. And there are new worries about patients becoming reinfected. But experts say there is no cause for panic and the reinfection is common with other coronaviruses. Experts say that it's a good thing. What we are learning about infection is that people do develop an immune response. New research suggests that virus protection may not last long. And so that would be scary for someone who has had COVID to think, am I going to have to go through this again? In late August 2020, researchers presented the first confirmed case of coronavirus reinfection documented so far. In the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases, scientists at the University of Hong Kong described the case of a 33-year-old man who is now in otherwise good health. In March, the patient was hospitalized with COVID-19, but cleared the infection and was discharged. Four and a half months later, he tested positive again in an airport upon returning to Hong Kong after a trip to Spain. Observing a textbook example of how immunity should work, the team noted that for people who got infected early on in the pandemic, there may be a four or five month window where reinfection can happen. The findings also update our understanding of what immunity really means. Being immune to a virus does not mean a person will not get re-exposed and reinfected. They will. But evidence suggests the infection will be controlled much more quickly without causing symptoms and likely without being contagious. Here to talk about the major takeaways from the first confirmed case of COVID-19 reinfection is Inverse's Emma Batwell. Hey, Emma, welcome back. Hey, Tanya. Good to be back. 
what I'd love to get a sense of first is how this study ultimately revealed or what it revealed about this specific case. The genetic analysis showed us what exactly? Yeah, so the genetic analysis is really the important or one of the most important parts of the study. So there have been a bunch of sort of earlier reports circulating about whether we could get coronavirus again. A lot of those were just sort of one prolonged case or a situation that was triggered by a false positive. You know, it says it's positive when it is not actually. So this is different because the team was able to basically show that the, the coronavirus that this individual was infected with the second time had a slightly different genetic signature than the one that the patient was infected with the first time, which basically leaves virtually no, if not little, room for doubt that this is a case of reinfection. And so this individual was a 33-year-old man from Hong Kong who was otherwise in good health. Um, but in March, that patient was hospitalized with COVID-19, cleared the infection, was discharged, and then four and a half months later, he was diagnosed with coronavirus again, and that was the slightly different genetic signature, and that was sort of that case of reinfection. So does the reality that we'll be seeing this happen more often, does that become pretty compelling now? Yeah, I think that's one of the points that the two outside experts I spoke to for this story really uh, agreed on and and hammered home was that, I mean, this is only one case. And then a few days after this case, actually, there was another case of reinfection um, in Nevada, which I'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, I think that we can expect to see a little uh, more of these cases popping up um, now that enough time has elapsed since the beginning of the pandemic and that we know to look for them, honestly. You know, what was interesting here is that this patient didn't seem to show any symptoms when reinfected. One could take that as a good sign that the immune system is working and doing its thing. I mean, that's what it could mean, but how heavily can we rely on that? Yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough one because there were a couple of different sort of waves of reactions to this study as it came out. So the first one was sort of that gut-wrenching, oh no, we finally have our first confirmed case of reinfection. Then there was sort of this glimmer of hope where actually um, an immunologist at Yale sort of on Twitter was commenting on the study and said, well, actually the fact that this person had no symptoms the second time shows us that this is a textbook reaction of the immune system to the coronavirus, suggesting that the immune system can mount a strong response to the virus the first time around, which you know means that in this case sort of meant that when it was encountered the second time, hopefully that was one of the reasons we saw no symptoms at all. Then days later, Another case of reinfection made things even more complicated. So in Nevada, there was a 25-year-old who tested positive for coronavirus for the second time. So basically, this patient tested positive for coronavirus in April, felt fine until the end of May when they started feeling symptoms again, and that patient ended up later going to the hospital uh, in early June, where they were confirmed positive for COVID-19 again. And again, that this had the sort of same genetic smoking gun, suggesting that this really was a different instance of reinfection. So that case of reinfection where the patient actually had a worse experience with coronavirus the second time around was less exciting and definitely meant that as more and more of these cases surfaced, we're going to have to learn a lot more about how the immune system you know, remembers coronavirus and responds when it sees it again. And then there's the other question as to whether reinfected people can infect others. This is early, but what's the latest thinking on that from the experts that you spoke to? Yeah, I think that's a really big question that we have about, you know, what reinfection really means. So 
I think one of the things to take away from this study is that we really can't know anything about reinfection from it. Um, so basically, the team didn't recover infectious virus from this individual in Hong Kong. That's the study I'm talking about here. Um, and they didn't test to see whether that virus could then infect another cell. So it, we really know nothing when it comes to reinfection. That said, I had one expert tell me that they felt that it was possible purely by the fact that they could find the virus and sequence it. That would suggest that it was replicating, it could be transmitted. But I had another expert really caution against that conclusion, saying that this data in the paper really doesn't tell us much about that. So interpreting it in that way is really an overstep. And considering we have these sort of two dueling anecdotes right now and a big open question, I think that caution, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, is the best way of proceeding. And I say unfortunately, because I know that this is becoming a hard answer to hear. Mm -hmm. We will leave it on that note. Emma Batwell, thank you for the uh, hard dose of reality, but much needed. I <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks, Tanya. As COVID-19 sweeps across the planet, transforming our lives and livelihoods, in many ways, the response to it has also created information overload. Up next, the five most common COVID-19 mental traps and three strategies for not falling for them. Information can spread faster than a virus. During a health emergency, an infodemic can drown out reliable information and allow rumors to spread more easily, impeding an effective public health response. Why is it happening now, and how does it affect us? That was from the World Health Organization's official guidance on how to protect yourself in the infodemic of 2020. Throughout 2020, the novel coronavirus has swept through nearly every corner of the planet. As the virus continues to transform our lives, the response from scientists, politicians, and the media has created massive information overload. Staying updated on the latest advancements and media coverage can feel overwhelming. So as a result, people often cope by jumping to conclusions and splitting complex, nuanced topics into false binary categories. Mikhail Varshavsky, a family physician, tells Inverse that this black and white thinking is not only inaccurate, it's also making us miserable. The whole concept of the black and white thinking, all or none thinking, however we choose to describe it, is actually prominent in human thought. And these disorganized thinking habits really lead us astray in our everyday lives, leading to depression, anxiety, substance abuse, many other conditions. When a patient comes to me and they're feeling anxious or they're having generalized anxiety disorder, for me or anyone actually to say, hey, you should just not feel that way, that is useless, it's destructive, it doesn't help them in any way. You can't change your feelings, but you can change your thoughts. According to a recent scientific paper, which has not yet completed peer review, people are faced with no less than five common false dilemmas throughout the pandemic, polarized scenarios that create impossible choices. And now no less than three strategies can keep you from falling into these mental traps. Let's not waste any more time. Here to break it all down is Inverse's Ali Patillo. Hey, Ali, how's it going? Hey, Tanya, it's going great. So it's one thing to be hit with information overload, but it's taking a toll on how we think. What is it about an infodemic that leads to such extreme kinds of thinking? 
I mean, information overload isn't necessarily anything new, you know, with every major crisis, whether it be, you know, September 11th or the financial crisis in 2008, there's a huge upswell in media coverage, misinformation, and oftentimes conspiracy theories. You know, this is something we see all the time online. There's a thousand headlines to sort through, tons of mixed messages on, and that's outside of a pandemic. But COVID-19 is uniquely confusing because it was a novel coronavirus. We didn't know much about it. We still have a lot of questions there. And the science to answer those questions is happening before our eyes in real time. So in the past, you know, the public hasn't been this engaged with, you know, various clinical trials or treatments or vaccine candidates in development in the way that we are now. And a lot of that is because people's health and livelihoods are on the line. I mean, people just want answers. It's really unsettling for people to deal with uncertainty. And right now, you know, COVID is affecting our lives so profoundly that it's even hard to wrap your mind around. So when you're dealing with all these mixed messages from scientists, from politicians, from doctors, and you're just trying to make even simple decisions like, do I go to the grocery store? Do I go to a friend's birthday party? And I and trying to stay safe, you kind of fall into this black and white thinking just to get through the day and make a decision. And this new paper looked at how this type of black and white thinking goes hand in hand with creating false dilemmas, these scenarios where it's good or bad, black or white, one way or the other. But what are some of the more common examples of this type of thinking in the age of coronavirus infodemic? So the the authors of this paper were researchers and doctors and epidemiologists who were watching this kind of infodemic, as the World Health Organization calls it, play out. And they were really alarmed by the conversations people were having, by the way that science communicators were transmitting information in a way that was overly simplistic or overly reductive. So in this paper, they laid out these five kind of mental traps or false dilemmas that people are falling into when they think about the pandemic. And the five of them are health versus the economy, indefinite lockdown versus unlimited reopening, symptomatic versus asymptomatic people, droplets versus aerosols, masks for all versus no masking. Um, so there are these kind of absolutes on two ends of a spectrum, and they're making people feel like they have to make impossible choices. And in fact, you know, these are false choices. We don't have to choose between our physical well-being and our economic well-being. You know, we don't have to reject masks completely or have them on our face every single time we go outside. Um, there's there's a middle ground. And I think that all of it kind of comes down to the idea of approaching the pandemic from a harm reduction standpoint. Um, you know, one of the um, epidemiologist I spoke to, Angela Rasmussen, um, who's a leading scientific communicator and epidemiologist at Columbia. She's saying, you know, eliminating risk is not really possible. So what we have to do is think of um, these solutions or these concepts as additive and on a gradient. Think in shades of gray, um, not either embrace them or reject them completely. So in order to avoid, you know, these common mental traps, these COVID traps, how can we incorporate gray thinking into the mix? How do we apply that kind of complex thinking to current times? 
Yeah, so this is definitely easier said than done um, because like I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a really confusing time. It's a really scary time. Um, but they did offer some really great solutions, um, some of which are, you know, taking a breath before re you react to um, a headline or a new piece of information, taking a break from the news just to, you know, recenter and bring yourself kind of back down to earth. Um, but it's really about kind of embracing uncertain uncertainty and recognizing that, you know, yes, Yes, there is a lot um, that scientists don't know about how we can solve or evolve amidst this pandemic, but we are making huge strides and we will get through this. It's not helpful to kind of cling to this reductive thinking. Another coping strategy is to look at solutions continuously, especially considering the rapid influx of information constantly. How can we better apply that outlook? Yeah, so that's one of the key takeaways from the paper um, was the idea that, you know, even when an effective vaccine is developed or we get, you know, an, an amazing treatment that can help COVID-19 patients bounce back faster than ever, it's not going to be a magic light switch that immediately takes the world back to normal. There are a bunch of strategies and public health precautions we need to take along the way to kind of get through this and to thrive while we also survive because we have to you know, you know, the virus is not going away. This is staying with us for at least the immediate future. Um, and we have to learn to live with it um, and not stop our lives. So looking at solutions continuously means thinking about things in a kind of additive way. So if you're pondering going out to do a particular activity, think about, OK, I want to wear my mask. I want to social distance. I want to wash my hands all those things added together can help lower my risk and keep myself safe. It's not looking at things as, okay, if I wear a mask, I'm absolutely safe. Um, or on the flip side, um, you know, if masks aren't 100% perfect, then I need to reject them and never wear them. That kind of thinking is kind of the is is quite dangerous right now. And then, you know, when all else fails, there's always that tried and true method of taking that breath. Um, What's the guidance on reining in our initial impulse to react and taking a moment to act in a way that's more to our own benefit? Mm hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is something that's really challenging for people. And it's really hard for me as somebody who is, you know, so embedded in the media and what what people are covering on a minute to minute basis. I think it's really crucial for people's mental health to take a breath, to take a break. And when you do feel yourself kind of thrown into worst case scenario or you feel like you're just drowning in bad news and that the world is going to end, that's a sign to do that, to give yourself a break, to take a step back and think really, OK, what are the hard facts here and how does this perhaps new piece of information fit into what I know so far rather than assuming it's true or or letting it kind of cause you to be overwhelmed with panic. For the full story and breakdown, listeners can head to inverse.com. Thanks so much, Allie. Thanks, Tanya. Head to inverse.com to read more about the most common false dilemmas people face in the age of COVID-19. You can find the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, culture, innovation, and entertainment at inverse.com. 
Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.